And the song they just sang goes so well with our thought today and the passage today. Well, you know, there are a lot of days I don't remember. Like a lot of you as I get older, there's just some days I can't remember. And I remember the day I met my wife. I remember the day I met each one of my kids. Um, but some days I can't remember. But there's one day that I remember really well. It was a warm day in March. There were blue skies. And it was green grass at Fort Benning, Georgia. We marched under the shade of the 250-foot towers down the airborne walk that we had been run down so many times in the last three weeks to receive our U.S. Army uh, paratrooper wings. Now, many of the graduates that day would go on to regular Army units and would never again jump out of an airplane. But some of us had orders in our pockets to an airborne unit. Now, it's a small percentage of Americans, they say, that serve in the armed forces. It's an even smaller percentage become U.S. Army paratroopers. Along with our new wings, we had other distinct gear. We had Cochrane jump boots that we would shine so bright that we could brush our teeth in the reflection. We had maroon berets that we would shave till they were nearly paper thin so that they lay in a, a cool paratrooper-looking way over our ears. We had distinctive flashes. We had crests on our beret. And then when we got to our unit, we were reminded over and over and over of the distinctiveness of our calling. Even though the army allowed facial hair, paratroopers don't have a mustache. And if you had one, it didn't matter how much you talked about the AR-670-1. You would be shamed until you shaved. Command Sergeant Major actually didn't care about the AR-670-1 and said that every trooper would have a fresh high and tight at the battalion formation on Monday or they would stand before his desk with their first line leader. Our PT was even different. In the Army, uh, 180 out of 300 was passing on a PT test, but 270 was the airborne standard. And even though a lot of us had never been in the 82nd Airborne, you were going to do 82 push-ups for a division. And once you got to your 82, someone was going to yell one more for the airborne trooper in the sky, and you'd do another one. We had a five-mile run every morning. We would sing morbid songs about parachutes that didn't open. We were told over and over and over and over again that we were different and that there was a standard, there was a conduct that come with our high calling. We had served in a unit that jumped into Normandy and Holland, and we had better act in a way that brought honor to that name. Our unique calling demanded higher conduct. But at the end of the day, we were just U.S. Army paratroopers. We weren't the people of God. God's chosen people are called to a higher level of conduct. Today we see, just as Christ would make clear during his earthly ministry, that to the one whom much is given, much is required. Now in the book of Amos, we see that Israel, the people of God, had grown comfortable the country was in a time of economic success. They had turned a blind eye to suffering and corruption on the lower ranks of society. The wealthy uh, uh, accumulated things and money. They began to tolerate idolatry. They didn't follow God's instruction. Moral and sexual depravity flourished in the culture. Rather than following what God had said to do, they did as they pleased, but they still claimed to be God's special people. Does that sound like anyone or anything or any group that you might know? 
In the last week, we saw a series of, of condemnations on injustice and, and on not following God's word and, uh, of Israel and the surrounding areas by God through Amos. And today we're going to see that God calls His chosen people to covenantal accountability. God calls His chosen people to covenantal accountability. If you turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Amos 3, Amos 3, we will pick up where we left off last week. Amos 3, starting in verse 1. Listen to this message that the Lord has spoken to you, Israelites, against the entire clan that I brought from the land of Egypt. I have known only you. Out of all the clans of the earth, therefore, I will punish you for your iniquities, for all your iniquities. Can two walk together without agreeing to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when it has no prey? Does a young lion growl from its lair unless it has captured something? Does a bird land in a trap on the ground if there is no bait for it? Does a trap spring from the ground when it has caught nothing? If a ram's horn is blown in the city, aren't people afraid? If disaster occurs in a city, hasn't the Lord done it? Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his counsels to his servants and prophets. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who will not prophesy? Proclaim on the citadels in Ashdod and on the citadels in the land of Egypt. Assemble on the mountains of Samaria and see the great turmoil in the city and the acts of oppression within it. The people are incapable of doing right. This is the Lord's declaration. Those who store up violence and destruction in their citadels. Therefore, the Lord God says, an enemy will surround the land. He will destroy your strongholds and plunder your citadels. The Lord said, as the shepherd snatches two legs or a piece of an ear from the lion's mouth, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued only with the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. Listen and testify against the house of Jacob. This is a declaration of the Lord God, the God of armies. I will punish the altars of Bethel. On the day I punish Israel for its crimes, the horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will demolish the winter house and the summer house, and the houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed, and the great houses will come to an end. This is the Lord's declaration. Father, we thank you for your word. God, we praise you that we have your instruction in written form that we might know how to live and, and know your character and know what you hate and what you love. And God, as we come to a passage like this that uh, is both foreign to our ears and, and maybe hard to read and hard to understand, God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see. God, I pray that you would convict our hearts in areas in which we have grown comfortable and we are not uh, living in a way that is in keeping with the covenant you have made with us. God, I pray that these people would not uh, recoil from the cutting edge of the scalpel on the operating table, God, but that we would uh, willingly allow you to do your work in our hearts. That we would, we would not fight against the work that needs to be done in our minds. And that you would bring our thoughts in line with your, with your word. 
And we pray you would do all this for your glory alone. We pray it in Jesus' name, amen. God calls his chosen people to covenant accountability. And in this passage, we see three elements of God's covenant people. First, God has a chosen people. God hates disobedience in his chosen people, and God will punish disobedience. Now, Amos is a prophet. He's a, he, he, he didn't go to prophet school. He didn't go to the seminary of his day, but he's a simple farmer, and his name means burden bearer. And he was given this, this task to go to the people and to call out their sin. He was given a task to go and to awaken slumbering ears and to, and to call people to repentance. That's the burden that God made for him to bear. And in today's passage, we see three elements of that message that he was given. First, that God has a chosen people. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Listen, this is the message that the Lord has spoken against you, Israelites. Against the entire clan that I brought up from the land of Egypt. I have known only you. Out of all the clans of the earth, therefore I will punish you for all your iniquities. So God starts out by reminding the Israelites who they are. Like, you were a people who were slaves. You were slaves to the Egyptians, and I brought you out of that land. God says, I worked. Remember? Remember the plagues? Remember Pharaoh's son? Remember the Red Sea? You guys remember how you walked across on dry land, but Pharaoh's, they didn't. You're my people, not them. And then you're in the wilderness, and you were hungry, and I fed you. And then I gave you my, my law, and I, I gave you my covenant with you, and you, you made a golden calf, and I, I should have wiped you out, but I didn't. You are my people. Remember that? Remember that time. God points back to that exodus to remind the people of their special relationship with God. And then he goes on to say that of all the descendants of the earth, of all the clans, of all the families, of all the people on the earth, only you, Israel, have I known. Now what does that mean? What does it mean for God to only know them? Does that mean there are some families in the world he doesn't know about? Right? Like there's some people hanging out in Mongolia and I don't really know about them. I've heard, you know, God's heard. There's some people over there, but he doesn't know who they are. No, not at all. God knows everything. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, observing the wicked and the good. His omniscience means that he sees everything. He knows everyone. He knows everything. To know in the Bible is not just mere head knowledge. As one scholar writes, for God to foreknow is to forelove. So God is saying to Israel, only you of all the nations of the world have I loved. Of all the families uh, all over the earth, you're the only one that I have loved. I have a special relationship with you that I do not have with others. God says, you were chosen. You are my special people. I elected you. Remember, God is the sovereign creator. He spoke the universe into existence. He carved the mountains. He set the boundaries of the ocean. He upholds the universe. He causes nations to rise. He causes nations to fall. He directs the feet of men. He works where he wants. Remember the Nebuchadnezzar story, right? Nebuchadnezzar says, no one will hold back your hand or say to you, why did you do this? Because you are God and you do as you please. You sit in the heavens and you do as you please. I feel like sometimes only Westerners, only Americans start to think, no, 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 God, you can't overcome what I want to do. That's not what the Bible says. And God sovereignly chose these people. 
He chose these people from all the families of the world. You say, well, that's not fair. He should have chosen the Sumerians or the, you know, whoever, the Edomites, whatever. He chose these people. God chose Abraham to be the patriarch of his people and to go into a land in which he would show them. God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. Throughout the Bible, we see this theme, even in the New Testament, we see that all who have been appointed to eternal life believe, Acts 13, 48. Ephesians reminds us that God chose and predestined his church before the foundation of the world. I'm just going to read this passage. You can turn there if you want, but you don't have to. I'm going to read from Ephesians 1. And I just want you to, to, as I read, to see who is the driving force in this passage. Starting at verse 3, we read, Blessed is the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless and love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the beloved one. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, that He richly poured out on us with all wisdom and understanding. He made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure that He purposed in Christ as a plan for the right time to bring everything together in Christ, both things in heaven and things on earth in Him. In Him we have received an inheritance because we were predestined according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will, so that we, who had already put our hope in Christ Jesus, might bring praise to his glory. In him you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. And when you believe, the Holy Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. Friends, God is the driving force. God's will will be done. And God set his love on these people, on these Israelites, that they might be holy, that they might be set apart. But they forgot that. They forgot their calling. Only you have I known highlights the fact that they're his special people, they're privileged, and they have a greater responsibility. And because of this special relationship that God has with them, it makes their unrighteousness even more heinous. Even more heinous. And God will punish them because of it. Second, God hates disobedience in his chosen people. Look with me at verses 3 through 8. Can two walk together without agreeing to meet? Does a lion roar in the forest when he has no prey? Does a young lion growl from its lair unless it has captured something? Does a bird land in a trap or on the, on the ground if there's no bait for it? Does a trap spring from the ground when it has caught nothing? If a ram's horn is blown in the city, aren't people afraid? If disaster occurs in the city, hasn't the Lord done it? Indeed, the Lord God does nothing without revealing his counsels to his servants. A lion has roared, who will not fear? The Lord God has spoken, who will not prophesy? Amos here gives us a series of rhetorical questions so that we might understand the certainty of the coming judgment. 
You just let your eyes follow, but there's undeniable outcomes. There is cause and effect here. When people agree to travel together, they set up a meeting time and a place. When young lions roar, they have seized a prey. When a bird is caught in a trap, the trap had to be set. And when people sin, judgment follows. God's judgment is certain. If a trumpeter blows his horn, an enemy arrives at the gate, and the people fear. If a city falls, the sovereign God has ordained its fall. Amos preaches there's a coming disaster, and that coming disaster is because of their infidelity. God's judgment is certain. Amos presses that home to his hearers. Verse 7 states that when God announces judgment through his prophets, he has chosen preachers, and he roars in judgment. And in this, this roaring of judgment, terror follows. Fear follows. In verses 9 through 10, we see that, that Israel is incapable of doing right. They're incapable. They can't help themselves. They have to please themselves. One commentator says that the word right here also means straight. So it's as if Amos is saying they're incapable of walking straight. They are a crooked people. And God cannot abide sin. He cannot abide unrighteousness. He hates injustice. And these surrounding countries will be a witness to the judgment God would bring on Israel. Third, God will punish disobedience. Look with me at verse 11. Therefore, the Lord God says an enemy will surround the land. He will destroy your strongholds and plunder your citadels. Because of their disobedience, an adversary is coming. The riders are riding. The chariots are being greased. The arrows are being sharpened. This disobedience is coming, and the enemy will tear down Israel's strongholds. The stronghold, that's the safest part of the castle. That's the place you, 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 that's your Alamo. That's where you go back to when everything's getting bad. That's the place of comfort. That's the most fortified. That's the place of security. And once that stronghold is taken, the battle's over. And God says, this enemy's going to tear down your strongholds. The ruling classes have been living these lavish lifestyles. They've been comfortable. They've slacked on serving God. They've failed to honor God. They've failed to honor their fellow Israelites. And God's sending an army to tear it all down. Look at verse 12. The Lord says, as a shepherd snatches two legs or a piece of an ear from the lion's mouth, so the Israelites who live in Samaria will be rescued only with the corner of a bed or the cushion of a couch. There's a little bit of irony here, right? Because the shepherd, the shepherd, uh, if a wild animal snagged a sheep, he would go and he would try and snag a little bit of that sheep back so he could take it to the owner and say, look, I didn't just you know, have a cookout on my own. This was a wolf got this sheep. And so he would try and get a piece of it to show that the sheep had existed and that he's not pilfering, right? And the irony here is they're saying the only thing that's going to point back to the fact that Israelites even existed will be a corner of a couch. Their luxury. They're laying around. They're doing nothing while they enslave others. A piece of that couch that you're laying on right now, Israelite, that, that's the only existence that you even, only, re, only proof that you existed. 
They reveled in their wealth. And soon it would come to an end. Just think of that imagery. It's almost like in our day if they said, you know, they're going to dig through your burnt house and a, a, a portion of your family portrait is the only thing that will be evidence you existed. Utter destruction. Look at verses 14 and 15. I will punish the altars of Bethel on the day I punish Israel for its crimes. The horns of the altar will be cut off and fall to the ground. I will demolish the winter houses and the summer house and the houses inlaid with ivory will be destroyed and the great houses will come to an end. This is the declaration of the Lord. God will punish their infidelity. No longer would they be able to bring sacrifices because the horns of the altar would be cut off and thrown down. No longer would they be able to seek atonement for sin. No longer would they be able to grasp a hold of the horns of the altar to seek safety or sanctuary. Their winter house would be destroyed. Their summer house would be destroyed. Their ivory house would be destroyed. Their great houses would be destroyed. You see what the Lord is getting at here? They're obsessed with their selves, with their own pleasure, with their own comfort, with things. They fail to rightly honor the Lord God because of extravagance. He has blessed them and they have taken that blessing and made it ultimate rather than the one who gave it. They have forgotten they are God's people. They have forgotten they're not here to build monuments to self or bank accounts to self. They have forgotten that they are to sacrificially serve the one who chose them, that brought them out of Israel when they were slaves. Now they're too big for their britches. God brought them out of slavery, made a covenant with the Father. God gave them the land they would live on. God gave them victory over their enemies. God gave them wine in their barrels and their cellars and food in their pantry, and they turned and worshipped self. And as we think about Israel, and as we think about this passage, how should we live? Well, some might say, well, we have Jesus, so close the book, we're done. But we can't do that, can we? While there are dissimilarities in the Old Covenant, there are similarities as well. Let's think this. In the Old Covenant, Israel did not merit God's election. It was grace. They did nothing to earn God's favor, but it was God's grace and love on them. They were chosen by Him, and that demanded a response. They were to love God and and obey His Word. Now, they couldn't fully keep His law, so a Savior was needed. So on top of everything that God's already given, He gave His Son. Which brings us to the New Covenant. The church does not merit God's election. It's grace. We're not sitting here because we've earned it. We're not sitting here because we're smarter than the rest. We're not sitting here because we're more charming than anyone else. We're here because of God's election and His love that was laid on us before the foundation of the world. And God graciously gives Christians a new heart, unlike the Old Covenant. God graciously gives us His indwelling spirit, unlike the Old Covenant. But God's grace demands a response, and Christians are called to love God and obey His Word. Friends, if you have a Christianity that allows you to affirm your personal salvation, yet reject holiness, 
you must repent and believe the true gospel. 1 Peter 1 says this, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in all your conduct. For it is written, Be holy because I am holy. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in a reverent, in reverence during your time as strangers on earth. In other words, Christian, you are called to live a life that validates your confession. So the first thing we see that we should realize and live in light of this passage is we are called to live a life that validates our confession. Presence with the visible Christian community does not guarantee you are a member of the true church. In other words, you can walk through those doors every day and be the kindest, sweetest person in the entire world. And if you have not truly trusted Christ, and if that is not validated by this new man or new woman, friend, you are in danger. You can even hold leadership positions in the local church and be an imposter. Richard Baxter writes about this when he talks about the pastors that will hold the door open for those to go into the kingdom only to turn and have it slammed in their own face. In the new covenant, those whom God elects, those whom he gives a new heart, are a new creation. New. Not like the old. Remember, when we went through Philippians, we see that God has begun a new work in the church. And Paul says, I trust that he who began a good work in you will what? Bring it to completion. There should be change. There should be growing in holiness, a desire for holiness. Sometimes I will mention the, the old movements, whether it's church growth or whatever label you want to put it in, where they'll say, just pray this prayer, just repeat after me, say these words, and you're guaranteed heaven, and we'll talk about how that's not helpful. Yet I fear that in our day, the young reform movement can be just as bad. The only difference is they tack election on the front. When I listen to podcasts, when I look at memes, when I look at social media posts, I realize that in our day, the young reform movement hold a very different faith at times, some of them at least, than the reformers and the Puritans themselves. You don't believe me? Listen to Calvin. Quote, For if God adopts us as his children on the understanding that our lives should reflect God's image and we refuse to follow righteousness and holiness, not only do we basely and faithlessly abandon our Creator, we disown Him as our Savior. Maybe the problem was Calvin didn't listen to enough Calvinist podcasts. Maybe if he did, he'd be okay with drunkenness and R-rated films and profanity mouth, potty mouths and professing Christians, as long as they had skinny jeans and a cool t-shirt and a beard. Friend, if you are not growing in a desire for holiness and maturing in Christ's likeness, you have no reason to believe yourself 
a Christian, a follower of Christ. Paul says what? Examine yourself. See if you're near the faith. Be encouraged by the way the Lord is working in you. Be encouraged by the way you are growing. God chose His elect that they might be holy. Friends, a lot of things have changed since Amos' day. A lot of things have changed in the covenants, but God's character has not. God's character has not changed. His desire for a faithful, righteous people has not changed. One commentator on this passage says that Amos gives us an example of spurning the grace of God. Or as Hebrews 2.3 says, how will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It would seem that Calvin and the Reformers base their faith more on what the Bible teaches than on podcasts. And I say we should take a page from their book. If you understand Christianity to allow you to neglect God's command and live a self-centered lifestyle while pointing to a personal salvation in Christ, you do not understand the true gospel. In other words, don't you dare sing the words of in Christ alone today and then go home and watch a girl be trafficked on your device. Don't you dare stand in here and cry and, and, and then go home and watch a young girl be trafficked and then do it again the next night and then do it again the next night because statistically someone here today has watched pornography this week. Don't take up our time correcting our Bible study and our doctrine if you're not going to sacrificially give and you're going to spend all your time and money to live your best life now. Don't think for a moment, oh, those poor people, if they just lived on this side of the cross, they could do whatever they wanted and go straight to heaven. Friends, if Christ has begun a work in you, there will be evidence. If you believe you can neglect God, if you believe you can shirk following His Word, if you can neglect His people, if you can fail to love His people, if you can ignore His Word and then sing without a care, I, I fear for you. And I don't say that lightly. Because John fourteen fifteen says, if you love me, you will keep my commands. Are you growing in grace? Do you give evidence of a new creation? Christian, you are called to live a life that validates your confession. Second, understand that the eyes of the Lord are everywhere, and He will not be fooled. You can fool me. You can fool me very easily. If you haven't figured it out yet, I am very easily fooled. I'm usually the last one to know about anything going on, and I always have been. You can fool your friends. You cannot fool the Lord. I can't fool the Lord. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, observing the wicked and the good. 1 Samuel 16.7 6, 7 says, The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on your heart. He knows. Hebrews 4.13 says, Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and exposed before the eyes of Him and to whom we must give an account. Guys, you know those situations where you know someone's lying through their teeth, but because you can't have hard evidence, they think they've got you fooled? I've had a lot of those in ministry, right? 
I know someone's doing something, but uh, they assure me or not, only later I have my suspicions confirmed. Because of passages like this, I, 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 in that moment, feel sorry for those people because the Lord sees our hearts. The Israelites couldn't hide the blackness of their hearts and wrote religious per- practices. They, they, they couldn't hide where their hearts truly lied by still going to the, the temple once a week and bringing the offerings that you're supposed to. And neither can you, because God sees our hearts, and he will bring his judgment. He knows your nominal religion. He knows who here are his and who here are faking it. Third, keep money and possessions and recreation in their proper place. Whenever we talk about money and possessions and recreation, the first thing people say is, well, yeah, you know, the Lord would want me to... I got it but you got to keep them in the right place. There's nothing wrong if you go home tonight and have a glass of wine with your wife, but if you go home and smash a 30 rack, something's wrong. What pleasures, what comfort, what indulgences are keeping you from faithfulness? In other words, what are your cushions? What are your cushions? Luke 12 says this, our Lord says this, someone in the crowd said, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And Christ says, friend, who appointed me judge and, uh, uh, over you? He told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. And then Jesus tells him a parable. And he says this, a rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do? Since I don't have anywhere to store my crops, I will do this. I will tear down the barns and build bigger ones to store my grains and goods there. Then I'll say to myself, well, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. For this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? And that is how it is with the one who stores up treasures for himself and is not rich toward God. Guys, I know this one's a struggle for many of us. We live in a culture that is blessed with great wealth. We live in a culture where even our poorest of society have access to different things. Things that the poor of other societies could only dream about. Just think about how much our phones cost and how often we get new ones. Think about your financial goals in life and wonder if the average citizen in Pakistan has those same goals. Think about your last vacation. And then think about when was the last time that someone in Kyrgyzstan left their home village. We have been blessed with a lot, but we have to keep that in its right place, lest it become an idol. We must deliberately safeguard our hearts and keep those things in their proper place if we're going to be faithful to the one who blessed us with them. Fourth, let your election to Christ be your greatest treasure. Matthew 6, 19-21 says this, Don't store up for yourself treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
the Israelites were, were living these lavish lifestyles and they forgot their first love. We are not called to glory in things, friends, but we are called to glory in a Savior, in Jesus Christ. We are not called to celebrate all of our earthly victories, but to celebrate that our names are written in the book of life. Let God's gracious election be your greatest treasure, the thing that you value every day, the thing that you wake up and are glad that you have. Rejoice in this unmerited covenant relationship that you have with God that He bestowed on you before the foundation of the world. Friends, God calls His chosen people to covenant accountability. The kingdom of Israel had been ripped in two. Idolatry was rampant and justice was everywhere. And God's people would soon be carried off into slavery. They forgot who they belonged to. They forgot their calling. Now some of you I know, by God's grace, talk to you daily, and I know that you are seeking to be faithful. And and brother, sister, press on. Keep going. We're just pilgrims. Right? We're just here for a little while. Keep going. Stay in the Bible. Keep doing the things he says to do, even when they're hard, even when you don't feel like it, even when people make fun of you. Keep doing them. Keep going. Let people talk. Maybe some of you are genuinely a part of God's people, but you have forgotten your holy calling. You've forgotten that you have been set apart. And in the Christian life, there are periods of falling backwards. You look at your life today and you say, well, my goals are the same as everyone else. An early retirement, an HGTV home, a flawless complexion, a perfect spouse, that Pinterest life. You slacked on your Bible reading, but hey, life gets busy. You slacked on watching your language, what comes out of your mouth. What you do on guarding your heart, friend, turn back. Repent today. Come back. But the third group is some of you. Some of you have been faking it. You played this game so long. You know how to play. You know the Christian words. You maybe you grew up in church. You know a little bit. Maybe you even believe you're in. You know your life doesn't line up with this, but you're like, hey, this, this preacher, he's just, he's just a little bit crazy. I can go find a preacher that'll tell me what I want. Itching ears, right? Paul talks about that. They won't listen to sound doctrine, but having itching ears, they will accumulate teachers that tell them what they want to hear. Christ said emphatically that he will say to many on the day of judgment, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not do many great things in your name? And he will say, depart from me, I never knew you. Many. Not a couple. Many. You want to talk about a passage that keeps a pastor up at night? It's that one. How many times did I not call out a sin because I thought, well, we can't do that all the time? How many times did I not preach a hard message because I thought, well, we did one last week? And because of that, there's a many. Now, I believe all things are in God's hands. Don't hit me wrong, but I also know that we are called to faithfulness. A friend, I love you enough 
to say to you today, whether I ever see your face again, that you must repent and believe the gospel. Because there's going to be many on that day. And make no mistake, God doesn't grade on a curve. He doesn't care what your neighbor Ricky did. He's going to look at you, and he's going to look at his word. And if you do not have the blood of Christ above your door, friend, you have incurred his righteous judgment. Do you understand the gravity of this moment? Sin brings God's judgment. And the only way to avoid that judgment is to put your trust in Christ and be gifted His righteousness. To have God's Spirit within you making you into that new creature, to have your heart of stone replaced by a heart of flesh by Him who spoke the world into existence. There's coming a day of judgment. It's coming. That is the same. There will be a day. We will all stand account and only those who are in union with Christ. Amos reminds us at the end of the book. It's one of the reasons I love Amos. Amos is hard. It's hard, it's hard, it's hard, it's hard. And then it gets glorious when you get to nine. And we are reminded that God will fulfill his promise that he made to David. And there will be this coming eternal king. He will still build his house. And friends, that king would come. Indeed, that king did come in the person of Jesus Christ. Eternally God, he left his home in heaven and walked among us, fully God and fully man. He took the place of sinners on a cross. That wrath that we have all stored up, that that, that judgment that must come because of our sin, he took it on himself. It's called the great exchange because He takes our sin and gives us His righteousness. All those who believe He is, who He says He is, who believe this gospel and repent in turn, confess their sin, cast themselves at His feet. Friend, you must yield to Him. You must turn to Him. You have to believe this gospel. Today, not tomorrow, not another day. Friend, you got to believe it now. It is the only way to be saved from the wrath that is to come. The wrath that you and I have earned. Repent and believe the gospel. Father, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you for your gospel. God, I thank you that you are a God of mercy that would call men and women, boys and girls to yourself. God, you alone know the hearts of men and women. Draw the lost to you here today. Awaken those who are slumbering. Open eyes. Encourage the slumbering, God. Glorify yourself in us. Glorify yourself among us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.